All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I am Dean, and I will uh, be, it'll be my pleasure to guide you through this great conversation that we have planned today. Uh, we have Chief Anthony Batts will be on joining us, and he'll be sh- sharing a little bit about his journey, where we are with policing, and, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the crisis of leadership that occur in this line of work. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get Chief Batts up. Chief, how you doing? Good. Tony, please. That chief thing was a while ago, but I appreciate that. All right. Well, you earned it, So, uh, but we'll call you whatever you like, but you certainly earned that title. Very few of yes, us sir. get to wear that moniker. I got you. All right. So thanks again for um, taking time to, uh, to, to you know, come on and share a little bit about your journey today. If you could, could you talk to us a little bit about, about how it all started for you and, and why you got into law enforcement? Uh, take a very complicated story to make it short. My parents are, are from the South, so uh, one came from Mississippi, a uh, very tough uh, community at the time, Philadelphia, Mississippi, and then uh, my mom came from Jacksonville, North Carolina, uh, had uh, relatives, my dad, uncles, cousins, uh, in Marine in the Marine Corps, so I was very uh, um, impressed by uniforms, especially those class blues of the Marine Corps, because I had so many relatives out there. But I also grew up in the 1960s, and I grew up uh, with uh, um, Malcolm X, with Martin Luther King, uh, and a lot of uh, pro- uh, progressive uh, activists. And I was impacted during my generation, or for my generation, what Mal- Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King, excuse me, as I stutter here, uh, Martin Luther King was try- trying to get across was the fact that um, they were pressing for us to be able to go into in- inside of institutions. And that actually impacted me. And I remember when he lost his life when I was eight years old. And I asked my mom, I didn't know what he was really about at eight years old. I just knew he was an important man. And I knew that he had just uh, lost his life and was assassinated. And I remember, and I was a little confused because I, I remember seeing pictures of uh, people who looked like me being bit by dogs and water hoses and all the things that took place to him. The civil rights movement and then this man who was of importance lost his life and uh, for whatever reason my mom would say i asked her a question i said at eight years old i asked her does anybody care whether i live or live or die young person who looks like me and uh probably not totally understanding where i was coming from but not understanding my environment and the social upheaval that was taking place at the time my mom said why don't you grow up and become the answer to that question and that always stayed, stayed in my head. And then I had positive interactions, although I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, with uh, police officers in a positive way. Uh, and that impacted me also, which led me to become a LAPD Explorer Scout uh, and then uh, an intern for other police departments and eventually uh, signing up for Long Beach Police Department. But I really wasn't going to be a police officer. I was going there to save up enough money for about three years to go to law school. And I kind of, in the back of my mind, I kind of had uh, uh, the thought process of defending people in the Supreme Court, kind of like Thurgood Marshall, who had an impact on me also at the same time. Uh, after doing that about three years, I said my calling is law enforcement, ended up staying into it and ended up doing a total of 35 years. And of that, about 12 years as a chief of police at three different departments. Um, one that I grew up in the, in the town that I uh, went to college at, and I was a police officer there for 27 years. Then that's Long Beach. And then I visited uh, up to Oakland for about two years. Uh, there again, been pulled by the fact that I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and wanted to make an impact on those eight-year-old kids there who uh, wondered if anybody gave a darn about them, whether they lived or died. And then my, making my way to uh, Baltimore uh, for the same reason. So can I ask you something that resonated that you said there? Was... You can ask me anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked about people not caring or wondering if anybody cared if you lived or lived or died what drove that thought process and and really let's let's talk a little bit more about how you were able to move beyond that um that very morbid thought i think uh, growing up at eight year as an eight-year-old in south central los angeles i was extremely confused uh to be perfectly honest and didn't have a good grasp on it uh, i remember seeing those those uh pictures that we see today that people see as history those, those were real life things for me uh, when we turned on the news and people getting sprayed by water hoses and the march of uh, for Selma, where uh, people were run down by horses and, and dogs and things along those lines, and the people who were doing it were police officers. Uh, and they may have been police officers out of the South, but they're still police officers. I also moved to 
South, my family moved to South Central Los Angeles about two years after the Watts riots. So there was conversation about the Watts riots in Los Angeles the police department was not seen as a positive in my community at that time. They were seen as an occupying army. And then uh, having police officers come and come in contact with police officers who actually were positive kind of was very confusing. But also I had the, the fact that um, our lives or lives that look like me were expendable is what my thought process was at that time. That is, um, that's a tough thought process. Very confusing for an eight-year-old kid. Now, did you also see it, you know, I, I know you saw the, the riots and you saw the police as occupiers. What was the crime, the neighborhood crime like in, in that neighborhood? You know, at, at eight years old, I couldn't tell you because uh, it was uh, a loving place. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. There was, uh, uh, I kind of stuck out because it was just me and my sister. All the other families in the community had eight, eight nine, ten brothers and sisters, very large families. And so it was a family-oriented place. Didn't feel um, endangered, didn't feel uh, frightening, uh, but I also didn't have conce a concept of it. I wasn't paying attention to the news. But when I was growing up at that stage, it just felt like home. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about what, you know, your time. So you 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 journey up to the, the spot of being a police chief, mm -hmm. which I mentioned from the outset, very few people get to wear that moniker, and even fewer still um, people of color get to wear that moniker. What was that like? Did you, who helped you along the way reach uh, reach that level? I had a lot of mentors. A lot of people uh, saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. Actually, I thought in, in my thought process is if I did that job for 35, 40 years, and if I made it to sergeant and got to work the SWAT team and doing the cover narcotics, that's all I, I ever wanted, right? thought that would be just uh, icing on the cake. But uh, other people saw things in me I didn't see in myself, put me in places, challenged me. Uh, gave me good advice. I ran into people. I, when I went to Long Beach Police Department, Long Beach had an African-American chief. His name was Charles Usford. Very nice guy, uh, very a Southern gentleman, smart, intelligent, but he got the crap beat out of him as a chief in charge of mainly probably a 95% uh, Caucasian male police department. And um, he had a tough time in that position. But I remember watching him, and sometimes when you see people in the position, you think you can become that same thing. And so I, I ran into other chiefs at other times who have happened to be African-American when I became a member of Noble and seeing them in those positions kind of made, made me think if they can do it, then I can do it. And uh, my thought process, I really didn't think I could be, become a chief until I became a deputy chief. And about that time I said, I think I'm close enough that I know that I, if I was put in that position, I could do the job. All right, well, that's that's pretty incredible. So you, so you, Obviously, it, it worked out for you. You became a chief. Mm -hmm. Now you get there. Was it a heavy as the head that wears the crown thing or what? Like, how did, how did that work once, once you reached well, that level? You know, for me, I think it was all of the above, right? So um, I remember when I got the call at 6 a.m. in the morning and when I tested uh, for chief and I tested against nine internal candidates. Um, and if I remember correctly, I was the only uh, minority in, in that uh, testing. Uh, but I, I had made myself, through my perception, made myself very qualified. Never wanted anybody to say I got anything based on the color of my skin. Is that I earned it and I worked hard at it and I was diligent at it. And I had the education for it and, and I tried to get the tactical experience for it and I tried to get the task force experience for it. So I tried to work and do the right things and be in the right places. Uh, for the job and the opportunity based on my skill level, my knowledge, and, and my capabilities. And uh, I got the call, and when I got the call, I thought I was ready for the job. To tell you the truth, uh, before I, I got the job, when I was 41 years old, we had done a testing when I think I was about 36 or 37. I was, I was a deputy chief. And uh, in the meeting with the city manager, um, he asked me, did I really want the job? And I said, no, I didn't. And he was kind of offended. And he says, what, what do you mean you know you didn't? And I said, I'm not ready to take that job at this point in time. I said, uh, I said I'm honored that you would even listen to me or sit down with me. But my skill level is not at that place right now for me to take and do that job. And I wouldn't be able to do it at the level that I wanted to. And I think uh, when we finished uh, talking, I think he appreciated my honesty. Uh, but by the time I was 41, I stepped in that job. I had experienced enough things at that executive chief level that I thought I was pretty, I was pretty sure 
that I could be fairly successful at that job at building a team and having to go in the right direction. And, and we were fairly successful for seven years. That's incredible that you get to the point, they offer you the job. And then, I mean, were you just in it to gain experience in the process? Or did you realize once they offered it to you that the lights were a little bright and you, and you weren't quite ready? No, I, I already knew I wasn't ready, but I had uh, senior people come to me and said it would be uh, a mark of disloyalty if you don't put yourself in the process, right? And my thought process is why am I going to waste time going through the process? I know I don't, I'm not at that level to do that. It wasn't a spotlight. I just needed more experience to go into that job. There again, like I was telling you, I didn't want to be put in a job just because. I want to put in a job because you know I could get the job done. Right. And uh, when I sat down with him, I'm going to share with him. He asked the same question. Why did you apply? And I said, what people had told me is that they would be disloyal to you as a city manager if all your deputy chiefs didn't step up and at least apply for the job. And then it's an opportunity for you to get to know me and me to get to know you to have those conversations. And if, if it occurs down the road, at least you'll know who you who you have and how I stand. And then and I was OK with that. And if he if he wasn't OK with it, that was OK, too. I knew that I needed to get more experience and to do the job well, I needed that time. All right. That's interesting. So, folks, I'm going to take a pause here. You know, you're on with difficult conversations by Supply the Why. We're here with Chief Bats. If you have any comments, I know that uh, a few people are going to have questions for sure. Please try to make them short and sweet because if you write war and peace, it's going to be very difficult for me to uh, to sift through everything that you write to get uh, to get get to the question that's it that's buried in there somewhere. So we're going to start it off. Mike has a question for you. He says, "How did you know when you were ready?" I think that, that that's an individual thing for individual people. Um, I have friends that I made chief at 34, 36, and got fired at 40 right, or lost that job at that time, and now it's impacting their, their retirements. Uh, I have guys who um, made it at 32, 33 and been very successful. I think, that's a, I think that's an individual thing that you have to know inside of you. Can you, being a chief for me in the cities that I was in, at least the first city, Long Beach, I think it's kind of like playing chess on eight different levels all at the same time. And you know if you're able to handle that and, you, and playing chess one, with uh, the city council playing chess two with your command staff playing chess three with your with your troops within the organization playing chess with the community playing chess with uh press and all those things are going on all at the same time and if you don't think you can keep up with them or you can't master those things then i'll step into that position and also if things go wrong you got to be comfortable with also taking that, that shot too at the same time um and if you're more focused on your mortgage and if you're more focused on getting your kids through school, because in reality, you can lose that job at any given point in time. Sheriffs, they get elected. So they have four years that they have, they could be in that office, but for a chief of police, normally you're in that will position. So when you come in one day, it could be that your, your boss doesn't like you, doesn't like the cologne you have on, it's just a bad day, and you can lose that job, right? And and today, I think, is a very interesting time for chiefs. Um, in how my so? day, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, how so? I think in, in my day, um, Policing has gone through different eras, uh, and policing through probably about 1829, 1830 to about 1920, we were very closely tied to politicians, and politicians told us what to do and how to do it, and we made sure politicians got elected. Then we evolved and went into um, what is called the professional standard, right? And so we were, we were detached from politicians, and in the city I was in, Long Beach, they actually had a municipal code that city, uh, or politicians couldn't give me directions. They had to go through the city manager. And then the city manager gave me directions from that point in time. And that was trying to get away from that political era of politicians telling you what to do. And so I had to bully pulpit to talk about tough issues. I talked about illiteracy. I talked about poverty. I talked about all those things that impact crime as a whole and wasn't afraid to do it. I had to bully pulpit. I don't know if chiefs can do that today. And I think chiefs are so, it's so easy for them to lose their jobs. I think many chiefs in cities, is, it's a throwaway position. If you uh, say the wrong thing, if you jump out there too far, if you have a crisis that takes place and they don't perceive you deal with it the correct way, you could lose your job at any given point in time. And I think that the offshoot to that is that because it's become a throwaway position, young, young police officers on the bottom don't feel protected. Because part of that role is, I think your job is to serve the, the um, the public trust. I think that's my primary function in my job. The other part of my job is protecting my people too at the same time. And you have to balance those two things. During this age, 
I'm not so sure chiefs can protect their their uh, guys uh, and organizations today, and it's very easy for them to lose a job. You know what we call that? What's that? A crisis of leadership. That is a classic crisis of leadership right there where, yes, we are charged with protecting the public and, and, and protect and, you know, creating public trust. But you're also in order to do that, you need the will and the and the and the hard work of the people that um, that that you work with and that, that work for you. Absolutely. And, and, and the balance that is um, I don't think people appreciate how difficult of a balancing act that is. Yeah, but that that also didn't happen by itself. I don't think we just kind of popped up into this scenario. I think it started happening. There's a couple. There's a couple things. We're we've gone through different iterations of American policing in contemporary time. Like the 1970s were about efficiency. The 1980s were about the war on drugs. The 1990s were about community policing. 2000 were about terrorism. And as we got further away from terrorism, I think um, communities said that said that we as police officers were pushing too far away from the Constitution are pushing hard on the Constitution. So only my opinion, I think in the last 10 years, we've been in a reform era. And so in those reform eras, we've dealt with consent decrees and civilian oversight to basically say that I don't trust what you're doing. And uh, and that's why you put mechanisms on top of uh, police departments to say, I don't trust what you're doing. So there's a disconnect somewhere. But what that has done is made that chief's job a throwaway job. Now, looking back, we can talk about that, but I think the bigger issues is looking forward. It's how do we win back that trust, that people trust us, and also that you can actually can protect your guys in that you're not ta- you're not tied to politicians. Because I think you need that you need that ability uh, to say the king has no clothes. So, what do you have in mind? It sounds to me like maybe you have some thoughts on the subject. I'd certainly love to hear them. Not so much thoughts. I think we, if in fact what I say is is true, and this is just my opinion, that we've been in a reform era, going through. Um, defunding the police and mm-hmm. the different iterations and things that have come up. I think it actually started about 2012 and has made its way through today. And if you if you if you take what I said from the 1970s to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s, it's almost every decade we kind of shift, right? One of the things that when I'm when I'm teaching and giving speeches, and I gave one in April April of uh, last year in Southern California, and I asked the audience that was uh, all chiefs of police. I asked, uh, I wonder if you can ask, answer this question for me. And uh, they said, okay, pose the question. And I said, what is the identity of American policing today, right? What is our identity? Because over those, over those other decades, 70s, efficiencies, 80s, war on drugs, uh, 1990s, community policing, 2000s, terrorism. Over this last decade, last 10 years, what has been our identity and what's our purpose? And the whole room goes silent. And usually when I ask that question, even when I'm teaching, uh, the entire entire room goes quiet, right? Because we don't know what our identity is right now. We don't know what our purpose is. But if, if in fact, what I say is true that every decade that happens, we're coming out of that decade. So what that, that uh, makes for us right now is a time of renaissance. We have an opportunity to craft what American policing is going to be for the future. But it's going to take courageous leaders to step up at this point in time to kind of say, this is the identity of American policing, and this is where we're going. But you have to do it with the community. Right now, I think we have to rebuild those bridges. I love that. That's 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 a great way of looking at it. Is the the Renaissance period of policing? Mm-hmm. All right. So I have another question for you. So Demetrius wants to know how do you create a culture of mentorship so the next person can be ready for the leadership role? Well, I think we we definitely have to have to do that right now. Um, Every 20 to 25 years, I see American policing goes through a lack of secession planning. Um, the time I remember that um, we had a tough time finding police officers nationwide was about late 1990s, 1998, 1997 to about 2001, 2002, right? And then we had 9/11, and then our then our, our, our ranks kind of swelled. But during that early, those late late 1990s, we had a tough time in finding enough police officers to come on, right? And the reason for that is 20 years prior, we had a tough time finding police officers. So we have this big bubble that comes through. And then 20, 20, 25 years later, today, we're having a tough time because a lot of people are retiring at the same time. 
Yeah. It's poor. It's poor planning on us on our part because it happens time and time again, right? Every twenty to twenty-five years, we have this tough time finding enough people because we have this big bubble. And on top of it, we're in this reform era too, that uh, is not uh, having young people gravitate towards police work. So, in order to us for us to prepare for that, we need to start succession planning. And if we know every twenty to twenty-five years we go through this bubble, then we're at when we're at fifteen or ten years. We start training the people who are going to replace us to step into those positions. That means that you have to have mentor mentor programs. Now, I found when I tried to do official mentor programs, uh, structured programs that came from me uh, down in an organization, they well they worked a little bit, right? I think when you have mentors in an organization who really want to do it on their own, and that is not uh, pushed down from the organization down, uh, that the mentorship tends to work better. Right. And when you have people who are open in higher ranks who want to sit down and help younger people to achieve, I think that's a good thing. Our bigger problem here is not even mentor mentorship at the top right now. It's uh, right now we're bringing on young people who are being trained by the FTOs who have two years on. So you're, you're having babies training babies in American policing right now. Right. And the tougher part about that is in this reform era is that they have about that much room to make mistakes today. Right. And they may not survive it. So you have young people training young people. And the way that you learn cognitively is that you got to fall down and scrape your knees and you're going to make mistakes. But America doesn't have that room right now, my opinion, that allows these young police officers to make to make those mistakes. I think that's a bigger crisis of mentoring is on the in the front door as compared to the senior leadership in our organizations. We can have that. I think we can survive that. Uh, but mentorship should be done. And if you don't have mentors inside your organization, if you want to move up, get mentors outside your organization. I, I, I look for mentors. And when I was when I was coming up and uh, I wanted to focus on being very good at the rank that I was, I looked for a lieutenant. If I was a sergeant, I looked for lieutenants inside my organization or outside that were very good at what they did or uh, people said they were good. And I went and asked them questions. What about this? What about that? How do you do this? How do you do that? And not only mentors inside policing, I had mentors in the private sectors, mentors who, who ran corporations. I went up to them and I asked them, can I ask you some questions? And I try to take from, from them running private industry is how do I do the same thing in public industry? Right. So you can go out. You have to go out and seek mentors if you don't have them within your organization. I think people inside your organization have to step up. But our bigger our biggest mentoring issue right now is those young police officers training young police officers. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, you know, because of that gap you talked about where we have, you know, we have a large number of people that are retiring, people are leaving earlier more than ever before because of the, I mean, if we're being honest, it's it's, it's, a, it's a difficult time to be a police officer. Could be, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not as simple, let me just make this point, it's not yeah. as simple as everybody says of simply saying, hey, just go out there and just, and do the job the right way and you'll have no problems. Like, that's easy for people to say if you're not on the street anymore. But um, it's it's you know, it, it, and I think it kind of it's dismissive to people that are out there doing the work too when you say that to them. So um, what's your response to that? Well, you know, when I'm I'm talking about this and and I hear that same subject every single week, right? As I as I travel uh, to different states and right now I'm in Texas, so every single week that when I travel and I I'm before command officers, I hear that exact same thing. And I think to be perfectly honest, I think you have young police officers right now afraid to do the job. Mm -hmm. They don't feel protected. Uh, they feel that, uh, you know, um, their bosses can't protect them. Uh, they're not sure of what they can and cannot cannot do. Now, I don't want I don't want to oversimplify that because that's a very complex thing. Right. And, and, and you got to know where I'm coming from. And I don't know if I'm going to make your your uh, your uh, listeners mad or not, but this is just who I am. And that's my stance. Hey, this I, is I, difficult I, conversations. No, <laughs> I, I'm OK with that. Uh, I love police officers. Uh, I love the industry that I've been in for 40 some odd years. I love being a sworn police officer for 35 years. And I'll say that for any group in any time, any place that I am. I think the job that uh, we are involved in is a very noble job that we're there to do. I think really we are the guardians of the American Constitution if we do it right. But at the same time, I can't stand corrupt cops. I have no love for them. I hate them to, with a passion. I hate corrupt cops, right? And, and the reality is, I think, when we start holding ourselves accountable, because what we tend to do, to be perfectly honest, when something happens, we'll circle the wagons and we'll, we'll protect people, right? I think we're starting to evolve to the situation now where people are calling people out. 
that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. that that's unacceptable. Because when uh, corrupt cops, and, it, and what I mean by corrupt, is officers sometimes make, make, make mistakes. And in this environment, they don't always have the benefit of the doubt. But officers uh, sometimes just make mistakes, uh, not out of the malice of the heart. It's just that sometimes people make mistakes. That's just, that just happens, right? And then there's, there's people who have malice in their heart who are trying to hurt people, trying to do things that are wrong, right? And those type of people are unacceptable for me, from my standpoint. Officers who are trying to do the best they can that make mistakes, you know, at that point in time, you have to support them. You have to, you have to take that bullet. They have to take that bullet for them. But officers that are just trying to hurt other people, we should be the ones that are calling them out. Whether they're police officers in Memphis that uh, uh, do things that are, are, are uh, unacceptable from my standpoint, or uh, Chauvin uh, with George Floyd, we should be those people. And remember, I said we're under a decade of uh, reform, right? And I think uh, a, a gentleman that I looked up to who was, who was a mentor for me, a guy named Bill Bratton, who you're probably very familiar with, right? Yep. Bill Bratton wrote a book recently, and he's written a number of them. He wrote a book recently. He says accountability will stop coming from outside, uh, uh, putting itself on top of us when we hold ourselves accountable. And I think he's absolutely right. I think part of the trust that we've lost is that people are waiting for us to, to hold ourselves accountable. Now, I see more police officers doing that. You had a young lady who's down in, I think it's uh, either Sunrise, Florida or Plantation, Florida. Oh, yeah. Where you, where you had the sergeant who wanted to uh, mace the guy in the car and he's, he's, he's playing the tough alpha. And she yanks him by the gun belt and pulls him back, right? Because whatever that sergeant does is not only going to affect him, it's going to affect those officers that are around him, right? If they don't take any positive interaction, they're going to lose their jobs, too, at the same time. And she, take, she took that risk with him turning around, grabbing her by her throat right, and telling her don't ever touch him again. But I think that's what uh, America is looking for, is that when we see things that are wrong, is that as those guardians of the Constitution, we address those things that's wrong. But on the opposite side is, I think the communities have to apply good police work. When you got police officers out there risking their life every single night at the jeopardy of their own families, and they don't get paid enough for it, they don't get thanked enough for it, and they go out there every single night, and they put their lives on the line, I think communities have to applaud that too. Not every police officer is out there trying to hurt people. And I think it, they, they need to be recognized and they need to be uh, put up as heroes, the ones who do a great job out there. And that's the vast majority of them. I, I love it. So we got a couple comments here. So uh, Mike says, Chief Bats is dropping knowledge. So <laughs> I don't know about that much. <laughs> and Dimitri says, thank you for uh, answering his question. And one more, we have Kwame who says, love these. Keep up the great work, brother. So I can't agree with you more. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there. And sure. as far as, you know, I love what Bill Bratton said about accountability will we'll slow from the outside. Mm -hmm. will slow down when we start doing more internally. I think that that is, um, that's a truth bomb. I, I love mm -hmm. that. I couldn't agree with you more. There is nothing worse than a bad cop or a corrupt cop mm -hmm. and the stain that they put on all of us that are doing the best we can Agreed. to do the best that we can. Agreed. And, I, and I'll throw one other thing out there to you. So the police leaders, one thing that I think would be helpful when you're having these conversations with your troops, I realize how difficult it is because as, as a police executive, we are wearing so many different hats, but maybe every once in a while, maybe you get up from behind your desk and you go out there and you put yourself on the front lines for a little while. I Go like out, walk a vertical with one with one of your, your patrolmen. Do a vertical patrol of a building. Get out and walk a beat. Answer some radio calls from time to time. And again, this isn't something you have to do every single day. But at the very least, you'll show your troops that you're standing shoulder to shoulder with them instead of standing behind them dictating what they do. Um, I, I just think that that would be a, a powerful thing. And I think the public would, would, uh, would appreciate that as well. Yeah, I like that. I agree. I think you have to lead, lead from the front, especially if you're expecting these young officers to go out there into these very dangerous communities and or neighborhoods. And even if they're not as dangerous as some of the places that I work, I think you have to get out there and um, uh, show them. If you expect them to walk out there, you have to walk out there. And it's a good thing for, for them to see you. I think you can't. When I travel, I ask uh, the audience, I go, do you want to see your chiefs out there? And they will say the same thing that you say. I want to see the chief out there to show me that he or she still knows how to do the job, right? I don't expect them to be out there all the time. But then this is a part, and I try to get out there as much as I possibly can. And like in cities like Baltimore, I was out there on Friday nights and 
Saturday nights and uh, uh, connecting with the guys and getting myself in trouble for different things and uh, that she's probably just stay out of the way with. Um, and, um, and, and when, what the guys would say, when I was asking them, they would say, well, not only should the chief come out there and do the work and arrest people if he needs to, but he should book them too and do the paperwork also. And I never thought about that as chief. When I was out there and I did whatever I was doing, I would uh, get out and handcuff the person, call for a unit, then come by and pick them up and they would have to book them. And they said, if you're going to do that, do the booking yourself. And I go, if I had to do it all over again, that's exactly what I would do is walk through the process myself. Well, there's an expression for that up uh, up here in the Northeast. It's uh, if you catch them, you clean them. That's you know right. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. So, yeah, I, I think I think that you should. And again, it, it, that's not just it's not just about, you know, just doing the job. It's about understanding what we're asking of our officers, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's no secret that paperwork now is greater than it's ever been. Gone Absolutely. are the days where I came, I saw, I arrested. And mm -hmm. that's your report. It's three lines like now, you know, and I'm guilty of it, too. Like you want your people to write these comprehensive reports and you want them to have all these different elements in there. And that stuff takes time. And you're expecting them to do all this and then get right back out there and and, and answer their calls in a, in a timely fashion. Well, I think if we're doing all of this, then maybe we have a better idea of how time consuming that some of these things that we're asking of our officers uh, truly is. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think another piece that um, with the limited time that supervisors and chiefs have as a whole uh, is also remember, I, I keep talking about um, these babies training babies, and I don't mean that as offensive. But when you have a, a young rookie been trained by an officer who's been on two years or one year, they're still learning the job, too. They're just getting off training wheels. And because of that, I think what we also have to be is not only on top of that paperwork and all the writings as supervisors and chiefs, that we also have to be teachers. And we have to teach every single day. And I think uh, in those roll call meetings that we have every single day, they have to be learning opportunities. We, have to, we should be showing YouTube videos and walking through those, what you should and should not do and have conversations. We should be going through case law to educate them on case law so they understand case law today and, and know it. There's a question I ask on a weekly basis of command officers. I ask, raise, a hand, raise your hands if you think we have police officers out there who don't know the law. Every single week, 100% of the hands go up, right? And so if, in fact, we have officers out there carrying guns, who don't know the law, who have been trained by younger people, then I think it becomes incumbent upon us to start mentoring. And the mentorship is not for promotions. The mentorship is uh, teach them the law, that they understand the law and know how to do the job, right? So every single day should be YouTube videos and having conversations, case law based on those YouTube videos. And so these young people understand the law so they can survive this job today. Because you guys have that thing called that body-worn camera, right? That body warrant camera records everything that everything that you're doing. It, it records the good things, but it also records the flaws. And if you have people who don't know the law, they're going to put themselves in jeopardy. And, and, and if we allow people to go out there who don't know the law, that falls on us as command and leaders, supervisors, and organization. Well, great point. I'm going to bring this up really quick, and then I got to hit the chat. We got some great questions that are waiting yes, for you. So um, another crisis of leadership is now we're also in the era of do more with less. Mm -hmm. Right. People are asking so much more of their police officers they are asking us to wear all these different hats, but the funding is dwindling and people are talking about defunding altogether. So, you know, as well as I do, one of the first things that gets cut when you have when you have funding crisis is training. Can't be one thing that the one thing that uh, I, I made a promise for myself is no matter how slim budgets become. And I went through the downsizing of 2008, 2009. Right. Uh, make sure that our, our, our training budget never goes away. And I think if you as a chief, if you ever go to federal court and you go to federal court and you say, well, the city cut my budget for my training budget, uh, they don't, they're not going to care. And if you haven't trained your guys on deadly force or uh, some of the, the, the responsibilities that we have, they're not going to care that, they, that your budget dwindled. I would, I would um, shrink other, other things, other places in my organization before I cut my training budget. I don't think you ever, ever cut a training budget. It's the All only right. thing that saves you. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's one of, again, one of those things. And again, it's a crisis of leadership. We are literally trying to rearrange the deck furniture on the Titanic mm -hmm. as they slice your budget by uh, by um, double digits in some cases. Well, they, they always have, and I work for city managers and mayors and, and uh, 
you can do it for school districts and two at the same time. Um, and what they give me is, is they say, I want you to reduce the budget by 5%. Well, me as a chief, I get to find out where that 5% is. What will never get impacted is training. So if I have to turn in cars, if I have to move from being a spe specialized units to generalists back in patrol and, and, and cut the horse unit, dog unit, motor unit, well, all the different units that we have and go back to be generalists, that training budget is not going to get cut, period. All right. So let's move into the chat. Um, Kaisha says, I appreciate Chief Bat's positive outlook on the profession, even in the face of the challenges that we're facing. She goes on to say, the epidemic of mental health issues that we are seeing in society is prevalent in our profession as well. How do we proactively confront both? Well, the first part, the first question was that we're dealing with a tough times and mental illness is the second part and how we deal with mental illness. So the first one was just more of a statement, like more so commending you for, you know, your, your positivity in the, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the difficulties that we're facing. This is more the question of, you know, how do we proactively confront both um, mental health in society and within our buildings? Yeah, that, that's a very good, very good question, especially internally. I think that's a, the other part of the thing that we have to have very open, real conversations about, right? Uh, because uh, we we take our own lives more than other people take take our lives. Mental illness is a tough thing for us, and be resilient enough to to be able to sustain this job. This job is not easy by by no stretch of the imagination, and not everybody's built for this job. Uh, in reality, when I came on, and with all the things that horrific things that I, that I saw. Um, and even not sharing it with my spouse at the time, that um, I saw some horrific things, babies uh, being brutalized by their parents and murdered and people uh, blowing their heads off and all these different things. I kept these things inside and I never talked about it. But I think for me as the, the executive of the organizations I've been in, in charge of, is my job is to tell people it's okay to hurt. It's okay to say that I hurt. It's okay to say that I wanna cry. It's okay to say that I'm overwhelmed. I think that starts at the top of the organization that you have to allow people to say, I, I hurt. And then you have to have um, uh, programs. I had uh, two organizational psychologists and I told people, you know, I don't want to know what you're talking to the organizational psychologists about. Go to them, use them, talk to them, whatever they need. And I never had organizational psychologists come and talk to me. We also had very robust peer counseling programs where you had officers who've gone through stuff themselves, sit down with other officers. Our officers are involved in officer-involved shootings, sit down with other officers and talk about it and be okay to cry and, and let those things happen. And I think that starts with leadership to be able to say, we don't have to be these tough alphas all the time. This job beats the heck out of you at times. And especially now uh, when we're struggling to be seen as heroes and, and we're not, and sometimes that has a mental impact on us too at the same time. And we have to talk about those things and, and get those things out. We also have to make sure that, especially now, because we have these large vacancy rates in police departments that we don't burn these officers out. We have a, we have a very difficult choice right now, right? We have, to, we have so much of a vacancy rate because of the stress and strain of this job yep. and, and the fact that we don't have large numbers of people coming in. So do you burn out your people in mandating them to work overtime, which destroys their families and cause deeper mental issues and depression and anxiety? Or do you bring in people not qualified to do the job to fill those vacancies so you don't burn out your people, right? That's the life of an executive right there, right? Nothing is nothing is black and white and in those gray. And my, my opinion always is you never drop your standards because you're gonna pay the price in the next five or six years. So then you're gonna have to find balance uh, for your, your officers so, so they don't work too much overtime. And that may mean, depending on the size of your organization, I come from larger organizations, that you move away from those specialized units and put more, get more people in patrol. And then it may get to the point where you as a chief have to stand up and let the public know my guys can only do so much and we may not be able to do everything that we used to do that, that once upon a time and we may we may shift some uh, calls for service uh, to officers who can take them over the phone or, or take that workload that way but we just can't keep pushing these officers to the limit we all respond to emergency calls but we may not respond as fast to when you get your lawnmower stolen out of your garage or your bicycle taken uh, because we have to balance the safety of these officers the other point for us in mental illness is the vast majority of our calls are with mentally ill people. About 2008, 2009, uh, there was a concept that started in law enforcement. It was called all hazards. And all hazards meant that we had to be prepared for everything, whether it was truancy, mental illness, uh, or major, major um, 
natural disasters, whatever it is, we had to be trained for everything. And I don't think that's really possible. That was a nice concept to talk about, but I don't think we can handle everything. We're not built to handle everything, right? And I think that we have to start uh, having conversations that every solution is not police centric, that some of these some of these other calls have to go to uh, professionals and a lot of police agencies are having uh, mental health professionals ride around in cars with police officers. They're having uh, civilians go out there and, and make contacts uh, with the homeless on their own. So we're, we're shifting into a, a different uh, phase. But I think the question about mental illness inter uh, internally and externally is huge for us. It's a, it's, a, it's a central core for a lot of police officer-involved shootings, right? So that means that we have to make sure that we work on how to address those things. And when you go to a scene, is to kind of slow down, take a deep breath, get into their reality, right? Calm down, don't yell at people, slow down, keep your distance and your safety. All the things you're, you're taught in CIT training uh, as compared to internally, we have to train uh, supervisors to recognize when your employees are having a tough time. And if you have a really good relationship with your employees, when you, you know them more than what their name is and how many kids are, when you really, really know them and you've taken the time to know them, you can look in their eyes and see that they're off balance, but it takes a different type of leader, a leader that spends time with their people, knows their people. And I, 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 I kind of tell people, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but I think you truly have to love your people. You truly have to love them, right, in their families and the impact that happens to all of them. Sorry for the long-winded response. Man, it's your world right now. So I, I was just sitting here. I was going to catch a Holy Ghost in a second because I'm telling you, like, <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> that piece about loving your about loving yeah. your people. I mean that that is is very true. Uh, you have you have to have a deep a deep. It's got to be more than just they just work for me. That's right. You know? And you got to get to know them. I think it's important. Uh, to get to know what's important to them. I think that, yes. that gets lost sometimes too. Yes. That you, you know, if you're not having these conversations with people and you're not getting to know what drives them, what motivates them, what their goals are, so mm -hmm. forth and so on. Um, how do how do you how do you motivate them? How do you That's keep right. them in the Inspire fight? Them. Yeah. And and yeah. then the last piece there that you talked about was that cri another crisis of leadership is that you know we're expected to wear all these different hats. Mm -hmm but we also don't want to burn officers out. I mean, it, I don't know where, what it's like where you are, but I know up in the Northeast, um, we never had problems finding mm -hmm. police officers. I, I mean, when I first tried to get on, thousands and thousands of people wanted this job. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, if you didn't get like a, 90, a 98 or higher on the test, you could forget it. Mm -hmm. Now we have people leaving police departments to go do other things, to go be firefighters, to go, um, some people leaving to do trades. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. it, um, it's, it's something that nobody's ever seen before. And I think it is because of that burnout factor, because of that, you know, we're expecting you to do all of these different things that we're not built for. And quite frankly, we're not equipped for. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it seems like all of society's problems end up getting dumped on the police when people can't figure out exactly uh, what to do. And I think people, all that, all of that is leading to where we are now. See, and that's when I was talking about the difference of being a chief in my tenure and my early tenure as compared to today, because, with those things, I would stand up and kind of say, this is an issue, why it's an issue. I would give the data, the stats, um, and the scientific data that's behind it. And then I would say, this is the direction we're going for this reason. And uh, I was supported in doing that. I think young young chiefs now um, may not have that support. If you stand, you stand out there, you don't see a lot of chiefs standing out there right now. Some of the senior ones are. Only because we're in that, we're in that era where uh, chiefs are throwaway and they're not protected. And so they, they also are, are a little concerned about sticking their heads up at, at different times. So I think it's just not, it's just, it's more than just a, um, a, a lack of confidence in leadership. Um, our systems right now are in that place where not only police officers are held extremely accountable, but their bosses are held extremely accountable. And if a police officer makes a simple mistake out in the field, and the boss didn't know about it, the bosses are also relieved of their position too at the same time, that makes, if that makes any sense. And that's just in that reform era that, that we're in right now. I think for me, and it may not be happy for politicians, we need to get back to that position where police chiefs are supported so they can support the organization, but they also have to hold people accountable. They will get to that position when communities know that they can hold people accountable for doing wrong. They will give back that trust that we once had 
But at the same time, those chiefs have to be also be able to say, this is not good for my organization and I'm burning my people out and it's hurting my people and I'm not going to allow that to happen. That comes from being in those positions also. Well, well said. Dimitri says, I've never heard a chief speak like you. I wish there were more of you. Great job. Dimitri, that's because I'm retired. <laughs> I have heard from a lot of my retired friends that it does give you a, 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 lack, a level of confidence uh, to say whatever you want. That yeah, absolutely, uh, it's difficult to have when you when you're in the position you just talked about. Mm -hmm. And Donnie Brasco says thoughts on dealing with supervisors who either can't or won't make decisions in the field. It seems to be a growing issue at the sergeant level. All right, Donnie. so who brought Donnie in with a can of gasoline and said, "Put out the fire"? No, no, I think I think didn't they have a movie about Donnie? They did. That I, I know this person. Um, he, he's actually like me. He actually had you in an FBI leader class. Get this out of here. It's his screen name. Okay, so uh, <laughs> so uh, Donnie, I think, is also right. I think it permeates all the way down the chain of command. If uh, the bosses don't feel that they can uh, stand up and say the king has no clothes, right? Uh, when you when you get into an environment when the environment's all about blame, when things don't go right, let me find somebody to blame, right? And somebody's going to lo lose their head. Whether it comes, whether if it's, it's if it's a chief who runs his organization that way, or if it's a mayor or a city council person who runs the organization that way, when it's all about blame and not learning and understanding, people tend not to take risks. And so, if they know that things something's going to go wrong, sergeants are not going to stand up. If they know they're going to get blamed, what they're going to do is go to lieutenant all the time and say, "Lieutenant, what should I do?" Uh, and then lieutenant's not going to do anything. He's going to go to captain. Captain, what should I do? And so they're just they're not going to take risks. I think this is this is the, the the entire system that I'm trying to talk about, right? So if you have a chief that can stand up and say the king has no clothes, if you have a chief that says and and has the integrity to kind of say this is right or wrong, and I stand for it, and people know that that chief's going to say it's right or wrong, stand for it, and take the heat, you know, even when it when it goes wrong, then people below them feel comfortable in taking chances, right? They will step out and to build future leaders, you need to build leaders who aren't, aren't afraid to take chances, who are creative. In this environment, in this, in this reform era that we're in right now, people are not, are not, do not feel safe to take chances. I would even say, I would even venture to say, I wouldn't be surprised if police officers don't feel safe to get out of their cars right now, right? And I'm not talking about safe from bad guys. I think they, they may believe, and nobody's told me this, I say they may believe is that uh, if I drive to a call and I make a simple mistake, uh, I could I can go to prison for it for making just a small mistake, right? Not not because I had malice in my heart, because I'm a human being, and sometimes I make mistakes and I don't see everything. Um, and they say, well, how do I deal with that liability? And what I hear from different, uh, and I've been in like 45 states, and that the statement that you made that we can't find enough people, I've heard in every state uh, that I've been to in the 45 of the 50 states that I've been there, that 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 is pandemic through policing as a whole. Because Absolutely. people don't feel uh, that they're they're uh, supported and that, that they're protected. And, and where where I was going with that is if if um, police officers don't feel safe, that their bosses are going to protect them. That uh, when they do something and they make a simple mistake, that chief's going to stand up and say, um, uh, "I support my guys." They're not going to take those risks. And it's in a, it's a systematic thing. It, it makes its way all the way down the line. It's just not a piece of the chain of command. It's the entire entire chain of command. And yeah. I think you know, we can talk about how we got there, but I think I, I'd like to say one little point, and I'll turn it back over to you. Sure. I think I like to look towards the future, right? We have the opportunity to kind of build the things that we were talking about today, right? And, but it's going to take courageous leadership. It's going to take uh, us holding ourselves accountable. It's going to take leaders and chiefs of police in those positions saying that this is a new day and we're building a new type of policing. Policing is already changed, duh. It's not changing. Everything around us has already changed. And so the new leaders of the future, the young guys out there who are questioning things right now in your audience, the sergeants, the lieutenants, you guys have the ability to shift and change and listen to what the community is asking you for. We have to adapt. You know, every every decade, I told you, every decade something changed. So I've gone through adaptation at least 40, 40 different times or four different times in four different decades. You guys are going through a change. So I think the leadership has to wrap around that change, have to own that change, and when you do that, then the public will start listening. Then you can start shifting into a new future. All right. Well said, Donnie. I hope that answered your question. I have one more for you, and then I, I just want to touch upon something really quick. Um, Kaisha's back. She says, I'm so glad that you've dedicated your time 
uh, poster uniform to pouring into the next generation of leaders. We need your influence to move the profession forward. Thank you. Well, and, and I thank you for that as well. And Donnie says, thanks for your answer. So we are, um, believe it or not, we're, only, we're down to about 10 minutes now. So really quick, um, if we could just delve into maybe a little bit of your time in Baltimore and what that was like, because clearly that is, um, that's one of the, the shiny examples of crisis of leadership where you have somebody who's clearly trying to build something and trying to move in a certain direction. And, uh, and maybe those goals weren't the same as the, um, as the city leadership. Mm -hmm. So Baltimore, we could. Baltimore is a beautiful place, right? And I mean that by there's a lot of beautiful people in that city that I, I would walk around and sit on a, what they call a stoop. I call it porch, but they call it stoop and uh, talk to the grandmothers and say, where are your people from? And tell them where my people are from and, and have wonderful conversations and get out there in the community, tougher parts of the community, walk around and, and talk to people. But I had a reporter when I when I came in uh, to Baltimore and when I went in Baltimore, I, I knew from day one, I'd be really, 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 really lucky if I made it two years. But the things that I thought I had to get done, I'd be really lucky to survive that long because I would be stepping on toes. Um, and when I uh, I went in there, the reporter, this uh, very um, tenured reporter, been around a long time. She says to me, you know, Baltimore says it wants change. And, it, and when they, they bring people here, they tell them they want change they really don't want change. They don't want you to change things. They like the, they like things just the way that, uh, and I remember that she said that and I, and I took it to heart, but it didn't stop me from what, what I was trying to do. When you go into organizations, I think from an, as an outsider, there is no positive uh, to help you succeed as being an outsider. Only because, especially if you have a lot of pride in your organization, you want people to grow up from inside and become your bosses, right? Every organization wants that. They want homegrown people to become their bosses. So from a person coming from the outside, that's that's not always uh, positive for people to, to make that happen. What I was asked to do by my mayor when I, I came in, and the mayor of Baltimore uh, was very respectful of, uh, respectful, up, uh, respectful of me, even up to the time that she released me from my position. Uh, she wanted me to uh, deal with uh, community policing. She wanted an organization that would get out in the community and touch and get to know people more, more often. I think Baltimore, their culture is built on being alphas. And what I mean by that is when they come across conflict out there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overcome that conflict, right? I'm gonna do whatever it needs to do. And that, that was culturally in their DNA uh, from, from, that, from that standpoint. Sure. Um, and it, it is a tough town. Baltimore is a very dangerous town. It is a very tough town, town in certain places in, in that city but also a, a, a very wonderful city too at the same time. Um, and as I, I tried to move forward with those things, I think we actually uh, made some positives. I had to push out some old school people. I had to force people to retire. I had to deal with politicians that I thought they had their fingers in the organization. Um, I would get call from calls from politicians that would say, hey, I known that kid's uh, uh, family for 30 years. He's a good kid, you should hire him. He didn't pass his background, but I'll tell you, he's a good kid and you should hire him. That's not happening. I get called from politicians that said, oh, I think this guy should be a sergeant, a lieutenant. I've known this family for a long time. That's not going to happen, right? And so I wanted to build a marriage system. But every time I said that's not going to happen, that was pissing people off. Very powerful people I was pissing off. And so I also knew that was my job and, and my responsibility. And then I kind of stepped on toes because much like what I'm talking tonight, uh, I started talking about illiteracy rates. I started talking about uh, poverty. I started talking about uh, segregation. I started talking about... Uh, deep-rooted uh, uh, racial issues that were going on. And all those things impact crime. People may not see that, but it all impacts crime in my job, right? And so they would always often tell me, stay in your lane. But where I grew up as a chief, that is my lane, to talk about all those things. And it always didn't always make people happy. And and, and so on and so forth. And I, I'll sum up that I enjoyed my three years in Baltimore. I enjoyed uh, working for the people there. I enjoyed the officers. And, and they may have saw that I was kind of tough. In that I pushed them, but my real goal was just to kind of build the pride back into that organization to be one of the best and to hold themselves at a higher higher level. All right, well well stated. Last question, if you could sum this up in about two minutes. So it is from John. John wants to know, Chief, how important is a strong PIO? And for those of you at home, that is a public information <laughs> officer. Judy Powell speaks highly of the relationship she enjoyed with um, BPD. I have learned a great deal from her. So how important is that role uh, of the public information officer, especially in today's age? 
not only just press information, uh, how we deal with press information throughout the organization as a whole, I think is, is very important. And I would say that I think uh, my organization was very successful at press information in Long Beach. Um, and how we built that is being straight shooters. Uh, we call balls and strikes. We didn't try to hide from things. It worked for us. They, did, they, they didn't always print everything positive about us, but we had, they, I think they knew we had integrity. Uh, I think it worked well in, in Oakland. Don't think it worked at well, worked at all in Baltimore. Judy Powell was there with me in Baltimore. She, I brought her there purposely when I came in because she had been the person that I have worked with for 25 years. When I had a crisis, I pick up the phone and say, Judy, how do I handle this? And she had to work for, I think, like six or seven other chiefs of police. So she had done a dynamite job. She was my chief of staff. But nothing that we did in Baltimore cut through what they were trying to achieve for themselves. And so all the things that I worked for Judy before, all the things that I worked for me before, I even brought in consultants to help us with um, relationships with PIO. It didn't, it didn't make a giant impact. And why that's so critical is that if, you, if you're that straight shooter and the community knows that, if you're on, a, on the verge of doing a riot and a riot is bubbling and you stand up there in a microphone and you say, hey, this is what's happening and we're going to be honest, we're going to be open, we're going to be transparent, they believe you. But if they haven't gotten that through media, right, uh, then you don't, have, you, don't have, you don't have their trust. And so that's how media is, is a very par integral part of policing a city. But if they're on their own agenda, trying to do their own thing, it becomes a little bit of a problem. All right. Well, John, I hope that uh, that answered your question. So, um, Tony, I almost called you chief. I know you told. I know you told me not to. I like it. Last few minutes here. How can people follow you? What do you? What's important to you? What projects are you working on right now? Well, uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff. Uh, primarily, I do is I I am um, out in the as you were saying in FBI lead. I takes up sixty percent of my time. Thirty percent of my time I'm done with my my uh, own company, and then I'm ten percent of the time I'm out doing speeches and presentations for different things that are out there. I think my biggest project is doing exactly what I'm doing here on this podcast and. Every single week is going out having these tough conversations with command officers and police officers uh, that are out there and trying to remind them what a, what a good job this is, right? And the job is not built for everybody. And I know with the tough times, it's really easy to say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go do something else, right? Uh, but the reality is for me, uh, this job that I've been a part of for 42 some odd years, put food on my table, a roof over my head and sent my kids to college, right? It sent me different places. Uh, I enjoyed being a police officer. I think it's a very noble uh, job to do. Everybody's not going to like you. Not, and everybody's not going to give you the shadow of a doubt. But there are a lot of people that are very supportive out there. And I also want you to know, even like communities that I grew up in South Central and in communities like Baltimore and or Lo Oakland and or Long Beach, uh, and every one of those communities, trust me, those people need you. They want you and they need you. But we lose them when we go in those communities. And if we don't play by the rules, then we lose them and we lose their trust. So I applaud you guys. My hat's off to you and don't give up. And then for those of you that the job's not built for, then ring the bell and get out of the get out of the job. Because what those young people need right now are true, true believers, leaders who are zealots, who really believe in turning turning our industry around. And they need people who truly love going out there doing the job every day. So I applaud you. And I thank you for allowing me to come on and pontificate for an hour and uh, with this long winded um things that i come up with so i appreciate you and i thank you for your valuable time well again um tony this is this has been fantastic and this is and this is why um i've you know i've been reaching out to you and and uh and and want you to come on because you have so much to offer and uh and people need to hear your message i mean this is important stuff to those of us that are still trying to fight the good fight we need strong people like you uh we need people like you know like chief craig there are mm -hmm. people that are that are in Massachusetts, you know, got you know Fred Leland, uh, Doctor mm -hmm. Dwayne Dwayne Denmark. I don't know if you know those names. Uh, Jason Armstrong. People that are that are, are going out there and they're, and they're really um, fighting hard for us now that they are um, they're in these positions of leadership to try to better the profession and um, and build trust with everybody. So thank and, you. And I, and I want uh, one more. Do you want to stick a name in there? Is your name? And as you've done this podcast and bringing these people on and having these tough conversations, asking tough tough questions. I applaud your leadership too and what you're trying to accomplish too. And don't lose the faith. Well, this is a perfect time for me to end the show because uh, I'm going to start <laughs> looking like I'm cutting onions in a few minutes if you, if you keep this up. <laughs> so, folks. Don't lose the faith. 
<laughs> so, folks, uh, Tony, thank you so much for taking time yeah. away from your very, very busy schedule to meet with us. Um, you have a friend forever up here in the Northeast. If you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out. Folks, that's going to do it. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a, another great episode of Difficult Conversations. If you like this episode, please like it, please share it, and please let people know what we're trying to do here. Um, and, and again, as always, folks, hashtag supply the why. We'll see you next time. Take care.